Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about 2003's Big Fish, directed by Tim Burton. This episode is different for a couple of reasons. One, I was the second second AD on Big Fish, and of the projects I worked on, it's one of my favorites. And two, this conversation is going to be more than just the crew perspective, because my guest is the screenwriter, John August. John, welcome to Below the Line. Absolutely a pleasure to be here. John, let's start at the beginning. Talk to me about adapting the book. So Big Fish is based on a novel by Daniel Wallace, and I had read the book when it was still in manuscript form. So it was just like a big box full of pages. Um, I had over the weekend to read it, and I thought, wow, this is just great. Like As I'm turning pages, I recognize, okay, this is a movie. There's so much I need to change. Like A lot of the stuff it wouldn't work directly on the screen, but like I knew kind of how to do it. I was adding characters as I was turning pages. I, I had a sense of how it all fit together. Um, I had just done my first movie for Sony, which was called Go!, and they were looking for another movie for me to do. So I said, hey, how about you buy the rights to this book for me, and I will come in and I will adapt it. And uh, they said yes. And so they bought the rights for me, but then it sat there for more than two years while I was doing a TV show. I did Charlie's Angels. I did other stuff for Sony. Um, when I finally came back to adapt it, I had sort of this you know, excitement to do this adaptation. It was also, I knew, going to be a really challenging adaptation because the book was not very much like what a movie shape needed to be. It was just a bunch of little stories and it needed to have a lot more sort of framework and structure placed into it. Uh, so that's an interesting point, John. The idea of the original book and the stories and having to structure it as a film. So were there thematic elements or were there through lines that you explicitly added to the screenplay that we wouldn't know otherwise? Well, so what you see in the book is the story of Edward Bloom's life. It's kind of the way he told it. Um, so it's all sort of the big larger than life stories and then the only real world stuff in it is his adult son is trying to have a conversation with him on his deathbed four separate times and there's sort of four different versions of the same conversation um but the present tense of it all was really not very well explained it was really mostly just the fables and so i kind of put myself into it so i made edward bloom my father's age i made will character my age and sort of used that so i could as we're moving forward and backwards in time that age gap would still be the same throughout it. I made him a journalist. I made Will a journalist because that's what my undergrad major was. I basically put myself in as that character because he was really sort of just a narrator in the book. Probably more importantly, though, I also had to figure out how to combine a lot of these little stories into a bigger thing. So um, a good example would be in the book, there's sort of the 12 labors of Hercules. There's all these little jobs that Edward Bloom has along the way. I added a circus so that they would all take place under sort of one big tent. So there'd be like one sequence that could hold all these stories together. So there's no circus in the book. There's no Amos Calloway as a circus leader. All that stuff is so different in the book, but it was a way of sort of bringing those, those little stories into a movie that would all sort of make sense. You know, John, I think that works very well, but I got to say from being on set, that circus was a lot of work. That circus was a, was an absolute beast because, um, you know, everything's like, oh, we just you film a circus. No, you, I mean, every little bit of that circus had to be invented to just be period proper um, to sort of build out all that stuff. And like there's so many little shots in that circus. Um, you know, everyone thinks like, oh, a montage must save you a lot of time. And I'm like, no, a montage from a physical production point of view is an absolute nightmare because, it, you know, for you're spending all this time and all this money and all these setups to get like three seconds of film. And yet that's what the circus is. 
all of this is taking place before Tim Burton is even involved with the project. Yeah, so uh, when I wrote the adaptation for Big Fish, there was no director, there were no producers on board. It was just me and this book. And so after I turned in the script uh, to Sony, it's like, wow, this is a really inventive story. It's a small, it feels like a small, intimate thing that's going to cost tens of millions of dollars. There's just no way we're making it. And so I went to my friends, Dan Jenks and Bruce Cohen, who had just produced American Beauty, which was a really small but incredibly successful movie that had done so well and won an Academy Award. And I said, hey, would you guys want to produce this movie? And they said, yes, we would. So that got me another draft at Sony. And uh, with their suggestions and sort of their guidance, the script really did improve a lot. And the biggest change between the first and the second draft of the script was that in my original version, Will tells the story of his of how his father dies at, at the funeral. And in their suggestions, like, no, he should tell the story to Edward like on his deathbed. I was like, oh, that's a, a much, much better idea. And it really transformed how that last bit of the sequence, that last bit of that you know section of the movie works. Um, so we had the script that we were really happy with, and Sony said like, okay, still like only you'd have to have a really big director on board for us to say yes. And so we went to Steven Spielberg, and Steven Spielberg said yes. So Steven Spielberg signed on to the movie. He was attached to it for about a year and a half. I did a draft with Steven. He was great. Uh, ultimately, he was doing nine other movies, and so we were never going to be his next movie. So <laughs> he gracefully stepped aside. Uh, we went to Tim Burton. Tim Burton read it quickly, said yes. And very suddenly, we were making a movie. So uh, from the time Tim said yes to we started cameras, it was like less than six months, which is really unusual. Now, are there certain elements that um, Tim brought into that pre-production as far as going over the script? Like, Did you guys have another version that somehow is a little more Burton-esque than what maybe Steven Spielberg would have done. Yeah, you would have assumed that, you know, everything would have changed because Tim Burton is such a specific, you know, character, a specific point of view, but it wasn't kind of written for him. And I think he was responding to a lot of the father-son drama because he had just lost his father. Um, and obviously the weirdness of the circus feels very Tim Burton, but that was kind of always there. Um, I think Steven's vision of it was a little bit more Norman Rockwell, but that's still kind of, you still feel the Norman Rockwell in it all. The witch feels very Tim Burton, but that was always described that way. So it was just a really, he was just a really lucky fit that it fits so well to Tim's brain. I would say of all of Tim's movies, though, it feels probably the least like a Tim Burton movie, like that or maybe Planet of the Apes. It doesn't feel so uniquely him, and yet it, it it fits him really nicely. So we do the filming in Alabama. We met there briefly. You came to visit. Talk to me a little bit about your time uh, spent in Alabama and how it might have been different from other films. You know, every movie works differently, and, and sort of what the writer's involvement is depends on kind of what the production needs and really what the director needs and wants. Uh, with Tim, he wanted me to come down to Alabama to for prep and really sort of as stuff's getting set up and started and sort of be able to sort of talk to department heads, address things that needed to be fixed. Um, in some cases, it was just a problem of like being in Alabama made it hard to do certain things. There was a big Dust Bowl sequence that was written into the script about sort of the day Edward Bloom was born. And there was just really no place to do a Dust Bowl in Alabama. So Tim said, could we make something smaller and easier for us to do? Like, what if the baby's just really slippery? I'm like, a slippery baby feels great. So the slippery baby sequence, uh, which is just now three shots of the movie, uh, took that place. And it really, it works better for the story. As there as the writer, I was also there for all of the... Um, pre-production meetings and also the table read, which is the first chance to sort of get all the actors around the table together and sort of read through the script. Sometimes those are great. Sometimes those go kind of poorly. I've had those go really south. 
In this case, it was good because everyone was kind of on the same basic page. They'd already met with dialect coaches, so we were all in the same Southern space in terms of accents. It was just a chance for actors to ask me, like, what does this line really mean? How am I supposed to be playing this in order for this to make sense? One of my first moments in Alabama was I was I just got into my hotel room and the phone rings. I pick it up and it's Danny DeVito saying, John, hey, I, I, this is Danny DeVito. How do I say this line? And so I, <laughs> I, I sort of gave him my line reading to Danny DeVito, an actor I'd never met, on sort of like what I thought Amos Calloway was trying to communicate there. So uh, it's fun when a writer can be a, a part of that, but too often you're not really included in that early pre-production stuff. And so the early pre-production, and you were also there a while when we started filming, Mm -hmm. but not that long, as I recall. Is that because there were so few changes, or were there other reasons that, um, I don't know? Well, again, every movie is different. And so, like, on Go, which was my first film, we shot literally word for word of the script. So we weren't making any changes, and yet I needed to be there every moment because it was really a challenge to sort of get stuff up and going. I ended up directing the second unit. It was always chaos. Big Fish was not chaos at all. Big Fish was incredibly well run. Thank you for helping us <laughs> run it so smoothly. But I mean, there there really was no sort of big drama to be seen. And so it really is a question like, does, does Tim need me here? Do, do I need to be here? And so on the first day of filming, the first shots were outside the Bloom household. It was Will and Josephine coming to meet uh, their mom and then going into the house. Like this, The shot is barely in the movie. But I was, I was there. I had my contacts on. I was watching the scene. And as we sort of, as I think his camera was turning around, I came up to Tim, you know, very respectfully and said, like, Tim, that was fantastic. An opportunity here would be if you wanted to do this, this, um, or, or get this little, this little moment. And I could just see like the garage door going down in front of Tim's eyes. Like he had no interest in, in me uh, helping out there. And so I was like, great, I can go back to Los Angeles and this is going to be just fine. So I, I flew home the next day or the day after. Um, I just didn't need to be on set. And so I came back once in the middle of production just to do press. And, um, but there, was no, there were no changes. We basically shot you know, a locked white script. Now, of the time you were there, and maybe this is more of a general question, John, what did you take about production? Or talk to me about the relationship between the script that you see being made and what production is doing with it in general. Because Big Fish was a, the biggest movie I'd done so far, it was really a chance to see like, oh, this is what a department looks like when it's really fully built out. So an example would be Colleen Atwood's costume department, which had taken over a whole wing of this high school that we were sort of basing out of for operations. And just to see sort of what she was planning for all the characters, characters at different time periods, different ages. This is what she's designed for the witch's outfit. It was just really remarkable to see sort of what things look like when they were fully built out. It's also the first time I'd seen real you know, sets being built for things I had written. So I had done... I guess I'd done some in TV, but this, for like a, a movie scale sort of sets, um, because we had no sound stages, we were basically out of this warehouse, which was not fully soundproof, but it seemed to work pretty well. And just to be able to to witness a production that was so nimble that like we could be outdoors shooting at the river and then like the light would change or like it was getting cloudy. It just wasn't looking quite right. Everyone could pack up and move at lunch and go to sound stages. Like that's just a thing I wasn't used to being able to see, just be that flexible. And that's, you know, it's money, but it's also having sort of that top tier crew. Now, talk to me about some of the specific scenes. You mentioned the birth sequence that was written one way for the Dust Bowl, but then was changed because of the locations in Alabama. Um, what other locations maybe struck you or even the way it came out really captured the vision or you saw as challenges when you were writing the script? One place we come back to again and again is Spectre. So Spectre in the movie is the little town that Edward finds in the middle of the woods. 
And so when he finds it, it is just this Norman Rockwell piece of beauty, this little island of paradise. And then he leaves it and he comes back and he finds it all sort of dilapidated and, and everything's fallen apart. And he is the person who helps transform it back into sort of where it needs to be, sort of like the modern version of, of that little town. And so that meant building that same place three different times and, and figuring out a sequence for that. In the case of Big Fish, I guess you guys found an island. I've never actually visited the set itself, but uh, an island you had to build it at different ages and then like really be deliberate about like once you moved on, you could never move back because you completely transformed what that was. There was a road and then there wasn't a road. There was, um, it was, you know, everything had fallen apart. Things were built back together at the end. So I believe the final sequence of that was like sort of the deconstructed, everything's gone to shit uh, version of Spectre. And uh, if people go to Alabama now, that set is still there, and it's still the dilapidated version of that town. So in the script, I can write anything. I can sort of describe things, and it was great to see that like what I had in my head really did pretty closely resemble what Tim wanted to do and what he was able to pull off in the film. Again, it's highly practical. I think if you were shooting that today, a lot of the sets would be virtual or extensions. Basically, everything you see there was captured in camera. Each of them had their own set of challenges, but for a film crew not to be able to go back to your point, it has to be very deliberate up front as far as what we're going to do and, and wrap things out. Tim is very comfortable with finishing a thing and not ever going back to a thing. And having made stop motion movies with Tim after that point, stop motion is the same kind of process where like you do it and then you just never actually go back to it. You can't continuously tweak and, um, and polish and perfect. And it feels like it's part of his aesthetic. He really does want to sort of get things right the first time, get it right in camera and not endlessly... Uh, you know, muss about with it. He's also, you know, the most prepared director I'd encountered at that point where like he doesn't sort of tell you necessarily what he's planning to do, but he definitely has a plan for what he's going to do. And he has notebooks full of every scene and sort of exactly how he's going to approach it. He's, uh, he's painting watercolors that's all over his offices about sort of like, this is what things look like. And you really get a sense that he has built out in his head what it's going to be. And yeah, as the screenwriter, I kind of felt like one of his department heads coming to him with like, this is my vision for how we can do stuff and getting sort of yeses or nos, but not getting a lot of micromanaging. Well, John, you did mention before how nicely it was organized and we'll credit uh, uh, Catterley Fraunfeld of the first AD. Oh God, Catterley's amazing. Her full team for that. I will say, I think that you, uh, you, you did miss out on some of the challenges of working with Tim where he knew what he wanted, but you didn't always know when he was getting close to having it. And mm-hmm. so he might wrap or move, like you said, between sets and that weather in Alabama did have us running around midday quite a bit or not knowing what we're going to do until the very end of the day because different plan for sun, different plan for clouds, and different plan for rain. And again, Tim Burton can wrap on the when it, once he's got it, he's done, and that's the end of the day. So those those kind of challenges were were pretty hectic on that one. Yeah. So I mean, I don't have a great sense of sort of what it's like to be on a crew for this director versus that director because generally, as the writer, I'm seeing some stuff. But I'm not part of all those conversations. I would say Tim is not a screamer. Tim doesn't get angry, but Tim is very internal. And he just, you know, other than Catterley, who he fully fundamentally trusts, uh, there's not a lot of people inside that little bubble of, you know, sort of what is Tim thinking to do next? You know, in talking about bringing your vision of the book and then realizing it on screen, what about the casting? Was there anyone particular that surprised you to come in or added a new level of character? Or did people just fall in sort of how you'd envision that as well? 
I didn't have a strong sense of who should be in the movie from the start. I guess I kind of always wrote Amos Calloway for Danny DeVito, and it was he was always going to be kind of Danny DeVito. I think everyone wanted him to be Danny, Danny DeVito to be that role. Everybody else was a sort of a blank slate. And so back in the time when it was Steven Spielberg directing it, uh, he had this vision of like, you know, maybe we could do the thing where we de-age a person. So this was 10 years before anybody was trying to de-age a person. He had some conversations with actors. I know Jack Nicholson was someone he'd gone to, uh, thinking like, oh, we could be both the older Edward and we could de-age him somehow uh, to get him to the younger version. Nicholson didn't want to play an old man, which I get. He just didn't feel like that was his perfect fit. So when Tim signed on, Tim also had this question like, oh, could we cast one actor in the middle? And it ultimately was not going to work. And so then it became a question like, how do you cast the older and the younger version as a person you sort of believe is continuously through there? And, and credit to our producers, Dan Jinks and Bruce Cohen, who I think had the first notion of like, oh, well, what if it was Albert Finney as the older version and Ewan McGregor as the younger version of Edward? Because if you look at pictures of young Albert Finney, he looks exactly like Ewan McGregor. So it was just a really close match there. And they were both I mean, you know, the right kind of level of star for that part. Uh, then filling out all the people along the way. I remember my first meeting with Jessica Lang. Uh, she had come to New York to do a, a wardrobe fitting and we were at the Soho Hotel. And uh, Tim had me there. I, I'm not quite sure. Maybe we were discussing some notes on the script. And so I met with um, Jessica and I saw her, her and Colleen Atwood trying out all these, all these different dresses for her. And I thought they were great, but I also thought like, wow, I think I thought a little bit more housewife and you're looking really just glamorous. And Jessica said, well, she wants to look good for her husband who's dying. I'm like, wow, that's a really great thought and note. And I have not given you anything in the script right now that sort of does that. I didn't say all that all loud, but I thought, like, <laughs> well, that's a really good note. And so uh, that night on hotel stationery, I wrote the scene, the bathtub scene between Jessica and Albert Finney. So that was a case of like an early conversation with an actor really became an iconic moment. So I showed it to Tim first, and then Tim showed it to Jessica, and everyone was like, yes, let's do that. Um, and then that became a problem for production because we could not find a bathtub of an appropriate size to, uh, <laughs> to, to make that whole sequence work. So they kept like making bathtubs, you know, Goldilocks, the bathtub is too big, the bathtub is too small. They finally found just the right bathtub to make that sequence work. I have a hard time sort of picturing the movie without that now. And as we've done other versions of Big Fish on stage, we always need to find like the bathtub doesn't as an idea doesn't work on stage, but how do we get that same emotion, that same um, connection and that same ideal uh, through to the audience? Well, we're talking about the emotion and the connection with the audience. Uh, I watched the film again recently and every time I still get goosebumps during that race to the river, mm -hmm. the idea that that sort of came about as a change and that it works so well. Talk to me from your perspective, sort of the path and the evolution of that scene. So a version of that scene always existed. It wasn't originally told to Edward, but like, you know, we always did see uh, Will getting Edward to the river. And that, the idea of that also exists kind of in the book in a different way, but it sort of it does exist there. Uh, when I was writing that, those scenes originally, I did this thing where I would sit in front of a mirror and I'd bring myself to tears and I would hand write the scene. Um, and it feels incredibly method. It feels so like, you know, using your effective memory to sort of get to that stuff. But like, I think it works, honestly. And the, the reason why people like, you know, break down crying as they're reading the script rather than just watching the movie is because I really had gotten myself to that place. And somehow uh, all the words I picked and, and, and how I was going from moment to moment just really did a thing. And it sort of unlocked a, um, sort of a, an emotional reaction to, you know, the words you're seeing on the page and ultimately 
what Tim was able to shoot. It was, you know, it was just really trying to feel yourself present in this moment that you sort of keep wanting to get out of. Um, so I could really relate to being Will in that moment. I could relate to being Edward in that moment and sort of how you get to this sad but happy moment. And when you finally get to the river and everyone you've seen in the movie is there to send him off, that is goosebumps to me. John, you said this is the first time you'd worked with Tim, but you did a lot of other work with him. Talk to me about sort of the where things went from there and how it might have been different or what carried over. Yeah, so with Big Fish, I mean, he was largely shooting a script I'd already written, and there wasn't a lot of work for me to do. But shortly thereafter, he asked me to help out on Corpse Bride, which was an animated movie he was about to start shooting. And so I flew to London and sort of read everything and sort of got started there. Uh, worked with this great producer, Alison Abate, on sort of getting that sort of up and running and, and where it needed to be. Um, I always love a musical, so it was a chance to do that. I had written a song that was in Big Fish, the, the twins song, into the script, but I'd never actually met Danny Elfman until we worked together on Corpse Bride. Uh, even so, we'd shared a song credit, but I'd never met him. Uh, so I did Corpse Bride for Tim. Um, he asked me to do Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I loved Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I had written a, a letter to Roald Dahl when I was in third grade. He, <laughs> Roald Dahl had written me a, a postcard back, so I still had the postcard I could show Tim. And, uh, and that was probably more indicative of how most of my projects with Tim went, which was that we had a very quick meeting uh, where he said, like, this is what I want to do. I said, great. And I would come back and say, like, I will do this. And he said, go, go do that. And it was really short. It wasn't like a long development process. I He told me kind of that he wanted exactly the book and as much more as I needed to make it all make sense. So I said, I know how to do that. I gave him a script and we were in production uh, really quickly thereafter with that. I did Frank and Weenie uh, for Tim. And that was a, you know, a feature length adaptation of a short film he had done while he had just started working at Disney and uh, a couple other projects along the way, which didn't end up shooting, but you know, you know, it was an amazing opportunity to write movies for Tim. John, you mentioned in passing about trying to do it on stage, the bathtub specifically, but not all our listeners might be aware that there was a state adaptation. Talk to me about the transition from screen to stage. Right after the first screening, I guess, of big fish, the first, um, you know, kind of producer screening of Big Fish, I, I went to my producers, I said like, hey, I really think there's a Broadway musical to make of Big Fish. I guess it was after the first test screening. I said to my producers, I really think there's a Broadway musical to be made because it just, it feels kind of like a musical without a lot of songs. And so they said, we agree. We really think there's a Broadway musical to be made. We started talking to composers. Ultimately, I connected with Andrew Lippa. He and I put together, I wrote the book, he wrote songs. Over the course of seven or eight years, we got the sort of whole show together. Um, got an amazing director, Susan Stroman, debuted in uh, Chicago, transferred to Broadway, uh, ran on Broadway for about a little under 100 performances, uh, which was frustrating. And yet the afterlife of the show has been really remarkable. And so I was saying about the bathtub scene, uh, the equivalent m moment to that is an amazing song that Andrew Lippa wrote called I Don't Need a Roof, which is uh, Sandra singing to Edward, you know, sort of like, don't worry. Um, it's all gonna be okay. Like I'll be all right even after you're gone. It's just it's a really remarkable song, and it just is another big goosebump moment. That show plays a ton, and so it's one of the most staged musicals in uh, certainly across high schools in the U.S. right now. Um, but we also did a version in the U.K. We did a version in London with Kelsey Grammer. Right before the pandemic, I went and saw the Korean production in Seoul. Uh, we've got an Australian production. We have German productions. So uh, weirdly, I'd say. 
if you're a high school student, you've been more exposed to the musical version, the stage version, than to the movie version, which is just weird. So when people say they love Big Fish, I'm like, great, did you watch the movie or were you in a production of Big Fish? Because uh, among high schools, that's really um, where people know the, movie, the project from. Well, I'm going to have to find one of those because I would really like to see what they do with it. That's, yeah, uh, it's, it's great fun to see. And the challenges of moving from a movie format to a stage format, not just that it's two acts rather than sort of what we think of a three acts, but also just um, suspension of disbelief on stage is just really different. So you don't have to build everything you would otherwise build. Carl the Giant as a character is really a challenge to do on stage, um, but a great challenge. But something like Spectre, Spectre is very much a movie idea, like this little town that exists nowhere, and how you differentiate between Ashton, which is the town that he starts in, and this little town of Spectre, you just can't show two different small towns on stage. And so all that Spectre stuff gets pushed back into Ashton. But there's there's great stuff I love, and I think at some point, I will probably be writing some version of Big Fish for the rest of my life, (laughs) but at some point, I will be very excited to do the movie adaptation of Big Fish because the songs and sort of what you can get to from the songs is just so different than what we could do just in a, in a dry movie. Well, John, whether that's the first time I end up seeing it or whether uh, I go find it at one of my local high schools, uh, I do hope you'll come back and talk to that in more detail. This has been a lot of fun. On that note, we're going to call it a wrap, but great seeing you. Absolute pleasure. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website, below the line one word dot biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media, so check it out. John, what have you been working on? Where can people find you? I have a podcast that's been running uh, every week for 10 years called Script Notes, which is a uh, podcast about screenwriting and things that are actually screenwriters. So it's me and Craig Mason and a bunch of special guests along the way. Uh, so you can check that out. You can also find uh, everything I've written about screenwriting at johnaugus.com. I started that blog before Big Fish even, so it's, it's it's quite an old blog and has a lot of information, but most of it is still relevant to anyone who's interested in screenwriting. And in addition to writing movies, I also write books. I have a series called Arlo Finch, the trilogy, fantasy, that's available in bookstores everywhere. Well, my shout outs are for the regular bunch. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line.